Kia ora koutou. I'm Nick Tuki, New Zealand's Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Nick Tuki tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about the work being done behind the scenes by DOC's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Today, we're chatting to conservation expert and legend, Herb Christophers. G'day, Herb. Oh, g'day, Nick. Kia ora tātou. Ko Herb Christophers toki i ngoa. Ko te papaatawhai te mahi. Um, I'm Herb Christophers. I'm uh, in the media team at the Department of Conservation. Kia ora, Herb. I am really excited to be chatting to you today. Herb and I have known each other a long time. I think when I started my career in DOC about 16 years ago, yes. uh, you were in the team. In fact, you'd probably mm-hmm. been there since since before I was born, I was going to say, but for no. a long time before that. Uh, and uh, I've got a question here about what's your role at DOC, but in my view, you're kind of like a little bit of a DOC national treasure. So tell us a little bit about what your role is at DOC. Well, officially my role is principal advisor. That means I just get to be a storyteller, and so I get to talk about biodiversity, uh, pest control, and looking after natural things. How did you get started in the world of conservation storytelling? Because that's what you are. You're a storyteller. Mm. Yeah, I like to think so. Well, I guess it goes back to the time when I was working at Victoria University. I used to be in the botany department when there was one, uh, and I was on the technical staff there, and I just... uh, I just enjoyed the environment and I loved just soaking up the information and I just I just went in and when it came out, I liked to tell stories about it. And I was a tramper at the time and so instead of just head down, ass up tramping, I'd be interpreting the landscape as we went through it. Now, I'm not an ecologist, you know, but I had a fair idea of what, was I, what I was talking about and that just became a natural way of interpreting the landscape just as much for myself as for others. I think that's probably true. I think Mm. you're probably underselling it a little bit because if I think of all the times in my career in doc where I've been struck with something I don't know about or I need a a photograph of or I need a contact – the first thing that will happen is either I will pick up the phone to ring you or someone will say, you need to ring Herb. Yep. You you genuinely live and breathe the New Zealand landscape, whether it's walking your dog yep. in your local park in the morning or, or going skiing. What difference does that make in terms of being able to tell a credible story? Okay, what it comes down to is I get paid for conservation five days a week. I do conservation seven days a week. And it comes down to living it as part of my value set. I take my dog for a walk. I go through the local revegetation area. I look at the plants that are in the ground, work out whether or not they're the right ones for the area. Um, I um, listen to the birds, work out what's happening in the area. Just all that sort of stuff. It's a case of being a part of what's around you. We are not apart from nature. We are part of nature. And so if you live your life as part of nature, it makes such a difference to your perspective on life. How do you um, reconcile that statement with the fact that nearly 90% of New Zealanders now live in towns and cities? And that's happened in pretty much just two generations. We all moved off the farm and into the towns. How do you tell that story to a bunch of New Zealanders who aren't necessarily opening their eyes to what's around them? What could they do? You've got to bring it down to the backyard. I think predator-free 2050 is the best thing that happened to conservation in generations, and I mean that. 
generations because now people are taking ownership of conservation, whereas beforehand everyone would say, the Department of Conservation, what are you doing about that species? What are you doing about that landscape? You know, and, and they'd point at us as if we had to do it. You know, and let's be quite honest about it. Conservation is underfunded in New Zealand, um, but um, we were still expected to do a huge job, the heavy lifting. But having said that, you engage the whole of New Zealand, and the next minute you know you've got one hell of a big um, army behind you. If they say, I can do this, I can make a difference, my trapping in my backyard is making a difference, and you're given an incentive like that, and the next minute you know, you've won them over to a large extent. There are some flies in the eye, I mean, sure, there are, there are issues about how we control some of the pests we're managing, because conservation is to a large extent in New Zealand about managing pests, be they plant pests or animal pests. Yeah, I think you're right. And you're particularly right around the predator-free movement. And even where I live in North Canterbury, which sometimes feels a bit like a ground zero for nature, all around me, at least three or four times a week, locals are contacting me saying, well, what can I do? And can I join your trapping project? And I'm killing possums over here. And what can we do here? So but, but you've some- got wine. You've got wine. Why would you want to move out of there? <laughs> I know, 74 vineyards. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is it that... Um, do you think it's something in our core that makes us kind of, you know, want to want to save the things? It's about, I don't know, this is telling a bit twee, being a New Zealander, understanding what the values of New Zealand are. The values of New Zealand are its point of difference. Its point of difference is its biodiversity. You know, sheep are all over the world. You can get them anywhere. But you can't get a kiwi anywhere else in the world. You can't get any of our indigenous species anywhere else in the world. And if you can show that to people, I mean, we sell ourselves as Kiwis, but what are we doing? Kiwi are going down the gurgler. Are we doing anything about it? Well, maybe not immediately, but certainly there's an awareness now, far more of an awareness. You know, you look at the biodiversity strategy that came out 20 years ago. I wouldn't say it's not worth the papers written on. It had some great aspirations, you know, um, and out of that came Restore the Dawn Chorus, which I think is a very admirable uh, idea. But really, you know, we didn't get very far with it. And that's because it wasn't passed on to the people in general. Uh, you've mentioned the biodiversity strategy, hmm. the last iteration. What's different this time around? Well, we've just launched the uh, new or the discussion document about the biodiversity strategy. So we're seeking public involvement. We want people to have their say. What we're trying to do is get to a point where we prioritise the work that's going to be involved. And a lot of it, a lot of it is aligned with the Predator-Free 2050 initiative so that people feel as if they're part of the solution and they're not always pointing out the problems. And I think that's something that um, that we as New Zealanders really kind of, that that's we, we play to that tune, don't we? Because we yep. love to focus on anything that is um, either supports and champions our values or might be a threat to our values. So um, any time you see New Zealand's values under threat, uh, you see the country rally. They rally together, they look after each other, they send food packages to each other. I mean, I experienced it in the earthquakes. You got food packages? I made food packages for my locals. Um, and, And so it's tuning into you know, who we are as New Zealanders, sticking up for the little guy, even if the little guy is a wetter, right? Yes. Yeah, I love wetters, actually. One of the things that I love about you, Herb, there's lots of things I love about you, but one of the things I love about you is your wordsmithery. So, mm. you know, for your kind of um, career, you've focused on story and words matter. How you tell a story matters. Sometimes I worry that the way we tell nature stories is just a little bit earnest and just a little bit worthy and a little bit... How how do we get around that? Well, 
it's very difficult because on one hand you want to stimulate a sense of urgency and that's the you know, we're going to hell in a handcart. We need to do something. We need to do something. People don't like to hear that. They don't want to know that we're going to hell in a handcart. They want to know how they can help. But somewhere along the line, you've got to add a, and inject some incitement, excitement to it. You know, uh, planting a tree is boring as batshit, to be quite honest. <laughs> but, you know, I've, done, I've planted thousands, just let it get quite clear. I've planted thousands of trees. But making that the right thing to do, you know, how do you inspire people to do that? You know, that's it's... Uh, the right words, as you say, and making a difference, you know, uh, connecting corridors, making the difference between that little remnant of bush and this remnant of bush here. How do you do it? You collect a corridor and you connect the corridors between there by planting in there. Come back in five years' time and you'll see the birds will be flying along there. You know, vision, yeah. aspiration, something people want to see, something for their mokapuna, all that sort of thing. Yeah, you're right, Herb. Context is key. And, um, you know, tree planting can be a little bit boring, but then again, I've been on Turi Turi Matangi with a bunch of kids from South Auckland Primary School mm. and we got them to plant some trees. And for most of the kids in that class, that was the first time in their lives, in their little 12-year-old lives, they'd ever planted a tree. And I did hear one of them say, I'm going to come back in 10 years and look at this tree. What are some of your most treasured conservation experiences? Well, let's go back on that planting line. Mana Island, when I was a kid, I lived at Titahi Bay and I looked out the window and when I used to run along the cliffs there, straight out at Marla Island. It was a farm. It was just a bare patch of grass with a couple of pine trees on the top at the north end and the rest of it was just a farm. Over time, it obviously became a conservation asset and took all the pests off. Well, luckily, it was only just mice on there, so they got rid of those guys. And then the revegetation program started. We're only talking about a 200-hectare island, but for all of my life, it had been just a bare farm and that planting was one of those pivotal moments getting people out there, getting them excited, putting the trees in the ground, making a difference. And they can see that. And now you drive past there and you can see the little patches of green as it's coming away. Yeah, sure, we left some grassland there, but that's for the takahe to walk around in. They love it. And um, I've just watched it over the years. So, yes, that's one of the key ones. But there, there are many, many uh, uh, times when I've found um, lots of uh, pivotal moments in conservation. Herb, uh, your job has taken you from offshore islands to tops of mountains and everywhere in between, uh, but I, I recall it in particular you working on some of our volcanic sites. Do you want mm. to tell me a little bit about that experience? Sure, sure. Uh, back in the mid-90s, there was a, a massive eruption on Ruapehu which, uh, in which the, the crater lake basically emptied itself and threw all its uh, tephra, which is the volcanic soil, out of the hole and it landed around what is now the, what was at the time the Crater Lake, and it formed a dam. So that meant over the following years, from the mid-90s onwards, the dam started filling up with water. Now, being the good old Department of Conservation, we weren't about to intervene with nature, and it became technically impossible to do so. And so we just had to monitor the dam until it blew. The problem with that is that it flowed down the Wangehu to Tangiwai, which is where we had a major disaster back in 1953 when something similar happened. So we're monitoring this over... A number of years, it was 11 years in total, and as it got closer and closer to the top, I was involved in a lot of the um, to and fro from the top of the mountain back down again with the scientists at the time. <clears throat> and it, one week before the dam broke, we were down below the dam with water pouring out. So we were about, I don't know, five metres below the dam. The water was pouring out in front of us, which meant that the level of the lake was above our heads and the water was coming through the dam. I felt very uncomfortable then. And then one week later, I get a phone call. It's gone. The dam had gone. Poof. And uh, there were millions and millions of litres behind that. And uh, we were just very lucky that uh, we didn't get taken out. Now, 
it's very difficult when you're up there with a mad scientist who just insists on getting that last sample. And that's what he was doing. He was just taking water samples to see what the acidity was so that he could uh, carry on his research into the, the impact of uh, Lahars. But yeah, that was a particularly exciting time. Um, I'm making it sound like it's bloody boring, but it was shit hot. Part of the reason, I got to ski down afterwards. <laughs> yeah, well, that is true. You're, you're a, a, one of the most passionate skiers I know. Yeah, never enough skiing. I mean, that was a public awareness situation in itself, wasn't yeah. it? This it's, one was about health and safety. Uh, it was a very difficult situation because we were trying to let nature take its course. We had um, bridges across rivers that were going to suddenly become raging torrents, and those bridges were on the around-the-mountain walk. So we had to put signs on them, bridges. We couldn't close the walks until we knew absolutely imminently that the that the Lahar was going to break, but we never knew. We had to raise the bridges on uh, on the state highway between Ahakuni and Wairu, and so that, uh, like last time, they weren't going to take out the bridges. It was fantastic amount of infrastructure, fantastic comms, and uh, really fantastic working with the scientists at the time. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty scary. I hinted earlier that you've been with the Department of Conservation for... A- a wee while now. Yep. You're, you're one of our most gifted science communicators. So over that time, what are the, the real kind of neat science and technical advances that you've seen from the beginning of your career into doc into now and perhaps with a view to the future? I was thinking about this earlier on because I had, um, had asked myself this uh, in anticipation. And one of the most simple, straightforward things is GPS. Yep. You know? I went on to... Um, an operation one time with a map and compass and uh, the guy next to me had a GPS and so it was like uh, you replacing the old and I was very adept at using a compass and map and I could find my way around the bush not blindfolded because I wouldn't be able to see my map but this guy with a GPS he was similarly also very adept at using the GPS and I could see this coming a mile away and the next minute you know the GPS was involved in um, determining where our species were, how we manage our, uh, our helicopter flights, everything, just positioning. Because we're such a spatial organisation, GPS has made a huge difference to how we manage species and uh, pests just everywhere how you identify where pests are, how you identify where species are, um, what their habitats are, everything has to do with that. And doing that without a GPS, I don't know how the hell we did it. We just actually, in my little volunteer trapping project, we mm. just brought the dock ranger up a couple of weeks ago and we GPS referenced all the traps. Yeah, exactly. So we know where they all are now exactly. and we can put them on a map. Yeah. Exactly, all that, you know. If you want to find a particular tree again that you've found, you know, a very rare tree in the middle of the forest, how do you do it? Hit the old GPS, ping. You don't have to use a map and compass and try and triangulate it and rely on the fact that uh, the map might be slightly out and the compass might be slightly out and your navigation might be crap. (laughs) So the other one about uh, GPS is also migratory species. You think of humpback whales. Uh, I know they're going up to Tonga and coming back down again. The best way to track them, put a GPS tracker on them and you can watch their migration tracks all the way up to to Tonga and back down again and we've got these fantastic maps of them uh, going to and from the the tropics and the other ones, the the godwits, you know. You stick a satellite tracker on a godwit and you can go from Miranda to Siberia, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, flies up to, um, on the eastern flyway up to Korea, has cup of coffee there and carries on to Siberia. Amazing stuff, amazing stuff. And you say so you, you can track an individual bird and that, you know, that's also relating to the to the to the wider population. Just wonderful stuff. And Alaska, they also go to Alaska, so they've been tracking them over there as well. I think the record for coming back was was because of a, a tracker and they were able to get one going, I think it was seven days or something stupid to go from Alaska back down to Miranda. 
So there was the other thing about GPS, and yes, it's technology, and yes, from a science perspective, it tells us where the things are. But that's the bit that I remember mm. uh, when it came to the Godwits is, mm. is is the story that came out about that bird. E seven was her that's name. That's right. Yes, uh, and, which would have just been the name of her band on her ankle yep. or something. And so here's a bird who somehow, after feeding her, you know, gorging her face off uh, up in Alaska. Mm. Mm. Flies chases storms because these are birds that are only what the size of a you know, small, yeah. you know, smaller than a pukekul kind of. Yep, yep. And they somehow ride the storms all the way from one end of the world to the other, and she did it in seven days. That's mind blowing. That's I don't a story. Know, I don't know how they know where to go. I mean, they've got their inbuilt, inbuilt GPS. They don't need one, a technological one. They've got their own ones, and that's those migratory birds are just amazing. The cuckoos. How the hell does a cuckoo find its way back up to the bloody Bismarck Archipelago? Mum doesn't say, now, okay, then you can turn left at Australia and, you know, then you make your Shoot way towards deal. Vanuatu. <laughs> yeah. How the hell do they do that? Um, apart from your family, Herb, because I know you're a very proud family man, uh, what would you consider your greatest success story? <laughs> oh, And no skiing stories. No, 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 no. <laughs> It's kind of difficult because, you know, there's a, there's a series of things which I don't necessarily call personal successes, but being part of some of these successes. Returning a flightless duck to Campbell Island, you know, being feeding flightless ducks um, their breakfast on the heaving boat in the Roaring Forties. This is conservation. Here I am making a difference. You know, we were returning this bird to when there were very few left in the world. We got them breeding successfully in New Zealand. Yes! Fantastic. Now to take them back down. They clear the rats off Campbell Island. Woof! 11,000 hectares of island cleared of rats. Neat. We can now take these birds back to their rightful home. On the boat there, tossing and turning 50 birds down to the island and releasing them into their natural environment. That was a success. That felt really good. Really much of an achievement. Loved it. Loved it. Um, Kakapo, down on Codfish Island. Back in 2002, at the beginning of that year, there were not more than 50 Kakapo, okay? This is the last time we had a, a major, well, one of the first times we had a major mast and we, we intensively managed the kakapo. Being down there and standing still, pretending to be a tree while Nora, the kakapo, walked across my feet. That is success. The fact that we had them breeding there and we were able to take them from around about 50 birds to around about 75 birds. That is success. You know, Going to Tongariro, uh, down the Mangatapopo chasing uh, fio. Wonderful, running down there, and the birds, uh, you can see them out there in front of you, and, uh, and in fact, sometimes behind you. Just wonderful. And then you get to the top there, and the guy says, the hotel's full, there's nowhere for them to go. We're running out of places for them to live. Now that is success. You have a, uh, uh, a secure area for them, and you've got nowhere to put them. That means you're going to expand the area they live in. That's success, you know. It's all those sorts of little stories. The transfers, the, uh, all that, and that, that's, that's what I think of as success. That is a, a really neat list for your CV. Mm. And with regards to the kakapo, mm. they just hit 200. 200. I know. We're trying to work out when, the if they all survive, when is the 200th and whatever it is going to be because that would be really cool um, to be able to announce you know, that, that total number, whatever it might be, 200 and, and however many. And then we'll have the same problem you had in Tongariro with the fuel. Where, where are we going to put them? Where are we going to put them? And we've got that problem with Takahe, you know. We've, we've taken Takahe out of the Murchison Mountains. We've got them down at Burwood Bush. We've got them breeding successfully. We've got the pest control going to a point where we can say, we now have enough. We've got them on offshore islands. We now have enough that we can transfer them to somewhere. But where's that somewhere? 
at the moment it's Kaharangi. We've got them at the Goulin Downs in Kaharangi. Isn't that fantastic? Of course, you were involved. Uh, it was fantastic because I was there. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I know you're really, really good at <laughs> is bird calls. Oh, yeah. So can you please oh. immediately, I'll start you off. I'll do a shining cuckoo and then you do your favourite bird call. Okay, you ready? Oh. Uh, here's my best best guess at a shining cuckoo. <laughs> you win. You win. That was a ripper. Yeah. Uh, what else? What's your favourite? I, oh. I have heard you oh, for years. I can find you in this building because I can hear a tui or a bellbird and I go... Oh, look. Yeah. Do you think if people kind of... That wasn't very good. That was meant to be a warbler. <laughs> I can normally do it if I'm a bit more moist in the mouth. But We're, We should have done this with a beer. Absolutely. <laughs> Far better bird calls when I had a few beers. <laughs> no, that's one of the things you do. Uh, it's like um, uh, round up the usual suspects and you walk into the bush and ding, tui, ding, warbler, ding. Oh, there's a few uh, riflemen here. Oh, bing. Uh, there's the old um, uh, pied still, a uh, pied, pied tit, you know. Boom, 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 boom. And you think, okay, what's missing? Ah, no kakariki. They boat me up on the ridge. So you walk up the ridge. <coughs> boom, got them. And so the next minute, you know, you've got this artificial list in your head and you're ticking them off as you go along and you just understand what is happening in this bush, you know. And that is not going to be happening with everybody. And not everybody's a stupid nerd like me, you know, but... Um, that's that's how I got into it, just doing those things. I do think there's something to be said for learning your bird calls, though, because I, I, to be quite honest, I went through six years of university, mm. I got a zoology degree, I knew all the things, but I didn't know any bird calls. And so when I heard birds, yep. I wasn't hearing them, it was just noise. Yeah. But the minute I could pick them out, yes. then it's a story and you're right. Oh, so there's a kaka, but there's no kakariki. I wonder where they are. Good stuff. That's what spins my wheels. This is a tough one for you, but do you have a favourite species? Well, yeah. Um, are we talking animals? Well, let's go birds. Let's go kia. And kia are really cool. Part of the reason is because, um, well, I've always always had this uh, affinity to the alpine regions. I love it. I love the alpine vegetation, and I love the call of the kia. It's just so evocative. It's, it, it just means I'm in the alpine zone of New Zealand. Love it. And I've had so many inter uh, interactions with them that have been, uh, let's say, less than pleasant. <laughs> you know, uh, we went on a climbing trip one time when I was a, I was young and foolish, and we pitched our tent at the bottom of this thing called the Olivine Ice Plateau, and we were down in the valley, and we pitched our tent, and the bloody kids came along and landed on the tent and shredded it. So we one tent down, okay? That didn't help us. So we put a line along the tops of the tent because it was the type of tent that just had a ridge pole, uh, and you put or a ridge line, and you put the put a string along there to stop them landing on there. That's fine, that stopped that. But then, you know, we go off to the loo. And where did you put the toilet paper? You put it on the tent pole. They <laughs> pinched our bloody toilet paper. <laughs> they left you short. So, you know, sort of uh, little rascals, but absolutely lovable rogues, absolutely lovable rogues. We get up onto the, um, uh, the, the ice plateau to do some climbing, and this is fine. So we go, let's go climbing for the day. So we banged up the snow cave because we'd dug a snow cave and we'd, we'd pull out, we'd, there were six of us, and we, we'd climb in pairs. And we banged up everything and put it all over the packs and everything over the front of the uh, snow cave so nothing could get inside, including Kia's. 
Well, bugger me, they managed to pull away three packs and a whole pile of other stuff we'd put in there to get to stop them getting in there and raided our butter. Now, that was that was just the lowest of the low. Little bastards. They opened the can. They opened a can. Butter came in cans, okay, because yeah. it was the easiest way to transport it for this particular thing. Flicked the lid off the can and ate most of the butter. Little bastards. <laughs> Love them anyway. I spent part of my childhood in Araki Mount Cook National oh, yeah. Park. Yeah. And I used to hear them... Every morning, 5 a.m., yep. running up the roof mm. of our house and skiing down for no other reason than just funsies. Just, just having fun. Yes, yeah. absolutely. They're still having fun these days, but not sliding up and down um, roofs. I think they're sort of raiding ski field car parks and pulling the bloody car, um, rubber off people's uh, windscreen wipers, off the doors and off the roof racks. Actually, that reminds me of a bit of a public service announcement, uh, which is around... That you know, there's the saying "curiosity killed the cat," but it should probably be "curiosity yeah. killed the cat." Yes. Uh, and you lead know, lead head nails. Lead head nails. Mm. Yes. Hit so the nail on the head. Let's talk about that because, um, as a as a very staunch South Islander, it's something that worries the heck out of me. Why is lead such a problem for care? I don't think they can process it apart from anything else. They eat it and it affects their metabolism and they drop dead, I'm afraid, is what it comes down to. So Doc is running around pulling all the little head nails off its huts and putting um, alternatives in place so that they don't affect care. I mean, I'm sad to say that care have got to the situation where their species are critically endangered and we need to do something about that. Uh, and losing a few to things like, you know, lead head nails is the last thing we need. The last thing we do, we've got enough stoats up there doing enough damage, but, you know, if we can look after them as well as we can by whatever means it takes. Yeah, I think you're right. They are one of those icons of the country mm. and mm. probably people, because it happens way out there yep. in the nature, mm. um, people probably have no idea that we're losing up to 95% of care, mm. nests, chicks, eggs, yes. mums, everything, yes. every time there's a, a beach mast. So, yeah, they need Every little piece of help they can get. So I've been really impressed with the work to remove mm. the lead head nails. Given that sort of lack of kind of clear understanding of really what's at stake out there, what's the what's something you wish people knew about the science behind conservation work in New Zealand? I wish they knew that they can't get instantaneous gratification. I wish they knew that science takes time. I wish they knew that um, that people have got to. Look at condition and trend, and condition and trend doesn't happen overnight. You can't say, right, we're going to control the pests, we're going to save the fluffy duck, and then the, they get instant gratification as a result of that. It doesn't happen that way. You know, it's, it's time. And, and uh, telling stories, okay, you've, you've gone and done some pest control in here, and you reckon you're going to save the fluffy duck. Yes, we are. Well, tell us about the results. I'm sorry, we can't do that for two years. And or so you, 20. Or 20. You know, to get a trend, you know, you can show cause and effect and a knee-jerk reaction, but you can you show advancement over time. And so 20 years to get a really solid bit of science behind you. So how do you, how do you sell that, eh? Hey? Do you think Kiwis a little bit take this stuff for granted? Do you think we think that Kia always going to be their kakapo, someone will always look after them, there'll always be tuatara? Do you think we need to buck our ideas up a bit? Part of it's because the problem is not actually seen. Most people, I guess, they've seen a rat, sure. Most people won't have seen a stoat. Most people, a lot of urbanites won't have seen a bloody possum. They don't understand the problem. They don't realise the threat because a lot of it's nocturnal, you know, and, uh, and it's just there and we don't see it. And so out of sight, out of mind, not in the urban space, not in my backyard, you know. Herb, what do you think is the hardest part of your job? <sighs> Having to go back round again. New audiences, um, you know, um, the, the, the messages go out there, you, you rally the troops, and then you find that 
there's a new wave of people who don't know the, the story that you've just been telling and having to repeat it, I guess, but finding new ways of repeating it, finding new ways of engaging different audiences. You know, it's, it's very difficult. Um, new media, you know, social media and things like that as a new way of doing things. I'm not au fait with a lot of the social media issues. I know you're a bit more up to date with it than I am. I see your tweets all the bloody time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just that whole thing of uh, of how do you engage new audiences? How do you keep up the excitement? And on that note, how do you keep up the energy? Because I think that's probably the trick, isn't it? If you if you want to make people passionate about something, it takes a lot of heart and soul. What do you do to replenish your soul? I go out and look at the mountains. And I, I don't know, it just just connect. Connect myself and understand that I think I'm in a, right, in a good place and I think a lot of other people would benefit from being in a similar place. And I know that I've made a difference with a number of people's lives and, and it's really nice to see that they've become passionate conservationists, apart from my family. My, <laughs> my son called me a nature nerd. Uh, my daughter gets called a nature nerd and that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I think, oh, well, if, if that's the case, I've, I think I've succeeded in that respect. I, I think it's a badge of honour, Herb, and uh, I am one of the people that you've had an impact on in terms of, you know, being lucky enough to be an apprentice uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, for you over the years. So it's been a real honour talking to you today and thank you very much and I hope you get to spend more time in the mountains. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. That's it for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now and never miss an episode. 